0: I'm Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly. War in the Middle East. The U.S. strikes a pro iranian militia base while Israel targets a militant group in Lebanon. We have the latest. Race for the White House. As Iowa readies, the first in the nation caucuses analysis of new numbers regarding the state's attitude toward abortion. Budget in the balance. What Republican lawmakers are saying after their trip to the U.S.-Mexico border. And showing spirit in St. Louis, a report from a conference that has attracted thousands of young people. These stories and more tonight.
1: From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly.
0: Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Elizabeth and Seton. Our top story tonight, the Pentagon addressed reporters today on a deadly U.S. airstrike in Baghdad. The attack comes as the Israel-Hamas war rages on amid fears the conflict could expand. In the last several hours, the region was rocked with even more bombings and killings. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen.
1: That's right, Tracy. In addition to that deadly U.S. attack in Baghdad, the last few days I've seen a Hamas leader killed in Beirut. Two bombings in Iran that killed or injured hundreds of people, which ISIS has now claimed responsibility for. And a warning to the Houthis to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea. Their impact on the overall war between Israel and Hamas remains to be seen. At an afternoon press conference, the Pentagon spokesman discussing the U.S. strike on the headquarters of an Iran-backed militia in Baghdad that took out a high-ranking militia commander.
2: U.S. forces took necessary and proportionate action against Mushtaq Jawad Kazim al-Jawari, a.k.a. Abu Taqwa. Abu Taqwa was actively involved in planning and carrying out attacks against American personnel.
1: The strike carried out against the terror group Harakat al-Nujaba. Since war broke out between Israel and Hamas, Iranian-backed militias have carried out more than 100 attacks targeting U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria.
2: It is important to note that the strike was taken in self-defense, that no civilians were harmed, and that no infrastructure or facilities were
1: struck. The war between Israel and Hamas now lasting nearly three months. Heavy fighting continues. Neighborhoods reduced to rubble. Israel says several thousand Hamas fighters remain in northern Gaza. At the State Department, this assessment.
2: Obviously, we want to prevent the conflict from spreading, but part of that means that people need to stop taking strikes against our soldiers. And if they take strikes against our soldiers, we're going to do what we need to protect ourselves, as any country would do.
1: Also today, former Vice President Mike Pence in Israel getting an up-close look at what remained of a police station attacked by Hamas terrorists October 7th, and hearing accounts of what happened during a fierce battle between Hamas and police officers. I consider Israel our most cherished ally, and in this dark hour, uh, I wanted to do my part to make sure the people of Israel know that the people of the United States are with you. Also tonight, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading back to the Mideast this weekend for the third trip there, I should say the fourth time, in three months to try to keep the fighting contained. And separately tonight, the war in Ukraine. U.S. intelligence officials say Russia is starting to use ballistic missiles from North Korea. This as Moscow struggles to replenish its stockpiles. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly.
0: Our three senators have spent weeks hammering out a complex immigration deal with the Biden administration. They want to stop the surge of migrants at the southern border while easing passage for aid to Ukraine and Israel. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales joins us now with the latest.
3: Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. You know, all sides agree that there is a national security problem at the southern border. Leaders in cities and counties across the nation say that they simply cannot handle the record flow of illegal migration. That doesn't mean everyone agrees on how to solve it. Still, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says negotiations are going well. We're making progress, we're closer than we have been. But this is a very difficult issue, and there are still different things, different issues to be overcome with. Senate negotiators are working on bipartisan changes to asylum laws and parole policies. They're also considering more power for expulsions and border shutdown. Our goal has been to find a practical solution to the crisis that changes the policies so that we can manage and control our border rather than allowing the cartels to control it. Speaker Mike Johnson and 60 other Republicans on a tour to the border this week say they will only back the House passed H.R. 2 bill or one like it. H.R. 2 Secure the Border Act would resume construction of the border wall, change who qualifies for asylum, and limit the Department of Homeland Security's ability to grant migrants parole. Our position is very clear, and we have made that uh, clear again for seven months. H.R. 2 is the necessary ingredient.
2: H.R. 2 doesn't have Democratic votes in the house or
3: in the senate but even some lawmakers who support the plan say it's doomed hr2 is a great bill obviously but i'm negotiating with um, a white house that vehemently disagrees has already said so they're going to veto that and a democratic senate meanwhile ukraine continues to come under heavy missile strikes from russia and the country's head of the armed services wants congress to act soon because ammunition is at an all-time low
2: What is given to Ukraine is not a charity. It's an investment in the protection of NATO and in the protection of uh, also the prosperity of the American people.
3: Instead of H.R. 2, the White House says it wants more funding for Border Patrol agents and immigration judges. Also overnight, the Department of Justice announced it's suing the state of Texas to block the implementation of a tough new immigration law, giving state authorities the right to charge immigration crimes. As that legal issue plays out in the court system, the record flow of illegal migration continues. Tracy?
0: All right. Thank you, Eric. Well, the United States is resuming commercial and legal travel today at four official crossings along the U.S.-Mexico border, which were previously closed due to record levels of migrant crossings. This comes as another large migrant caravan of roughly 7,500 people is making its way through the Mexico-U.S. border. And here to break down the latest developments is former chief of the United States Border Patrol, Rodney Scott. Rodney, always great to have you on. Uh, First off, let's start with these reopenings today. Your thoughts. uh, Do you think this is a good idea or a bad idea by U.S. Customs and Border Protection?
2: Well, it's, it's a good idea because it's very, very important to the economy of the United States. I think people forget that we import most products now from outside the United States. And international trade and travel is huge for the economies, not just in these border communities, but in the nation at large. And basically what happened is we shut down legal trade and travel to facilitate illegal entry to simply process people that are entering the country illegally. Uh, so trying to keep the legal trade and travel open, that is a critical aspect of Customs and Border Protection's work. And that is a good thing.
0: Yeah, uh, Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, is one of the reopened locations. And as we know, Texas recently put new laws in the books uh, to hinder illegal migration. But as expected, the Fed is now suing the Lone Star State for that legislation. Rodney, how do you think this will all play out? And do you think this will hinder Texas's ability to handle the impact of this caravan?
2: So this is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Something like this uh, has specifics have not been adjudicated uh, to date. Um, But it's really just a consistent trend or a consistent messaging on behalf of the Biden administration from the campaign uh, through the executive orders on day one, shutting down the border wall construction, overturning the programs that were put in place to actually secure the border. Uh, It's just a continuation of that in, in their mindset of having an open border. It is going to challenge Texas that they're going to have to re- divert resources now to fight this case uh, at the Supreme Court. But at the same time, I think it's it's uh, it's going to help them in the long run because we're going to get a Supreme Court decision in an area that's never been adjudicated before. And that is when the federal government willingly or unwillingly does not do its job. And in this case, securing the borders under the Constitution, a state has the right to do that. Uh, and that's basically what Texas is fighting here. So it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out.
0: Yeah, it definitely will. Uh, Ronnie, I also want to talk about the delegation of lawmakers, uh, fronted by Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, that traveled to the border yesterday. Uh, they are demanding some hardline changes to our border policy. That said, what do you make of the visit? And do you think this will actually lead to something and bring about, bring about that is, some real change?
2: So I love to be an optimist, but in this specific case, uh, I'm having a real hard time there. Um, the reason I state that is the delegation was all Republicans, the, and they were ha- the House. So the House passed H.R. 2, which was very good border security legislation over seven months ago. It's just been sitting in the Senate collecting dust, and the Democrats are fighting hard against that. And really what it comes down to, the main provision that the Democrats do not want is ending catch and release, and that is the one provision that is going to secure the border more quickly than anything else, and it's really fundamental. What you're seeing on the news every single day or what you're seeing in the videos you guys are showing is these massive numbers of illegal aliens coming across the border. The reason that that continues is because the vast majority are being released into the United States to to wait for a court hearing years down the road. Until that ends, this crisis is going to continue, if not just get worse. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't see anything out of this trip to the border other than a cons- uh, basically locking down the Republicans position that we need to do something on border security. We need to be one team. We need to fight for the country. But that still leaves the entire other side of the aisle absent from this argument. Uh, and that is going to be the, the problem in the road ahead.
0: Well, Rodney, always appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And we have a lot more so to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including Eye on Iowa, the latest on a shooting at a high school in the Hawkeye State, and heading into the nation's first caucuses later this month, a look at the voters' attitudes there toward abortion. They say a 17 year old who killed a sixth grader and injured five others in a shooting at an Iowa high school is now dead.
3: There is no further danger to the public. The community is safe.
0: Authorities believe the shooter died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Among the injured is an administrator at Perry High School. On the first in the nation, Iowa caucuses are January 15th, and a new study is shedding light on the attitude towards abortion among voters in Iowa. According to numbers from Pew Research, 52 percent of adults say abortion should be legal, while 46 percent say it should be illegal in most cases. For analysis, we turn to Christy Judkins, executive director for Iowa Right to Life. Christy, great to be with you today. Uh, As you just heard, we mentioned the results of that poll regarding abortion. I want to get your take on those numbers and just how big of an issue is abortion to Iowans? Is it a driving force to get them to the polls?
4: I would say it's one of many um, uh, issues that would drive Iowa voters to the polls. Uh, I think that there are a lot of hidden numbers, maybe not necessarily identified in the poll numbers that we might see. I'm not discounting those poll numbers, but I think the true test will be, you know, caucus night. And, you know, in the in the events that I go to where I connect with pro-life Iowans and who support Iowa Right to Life, uh, I I would say that I feel like there is momentum and it's something that definitely particularly those staunch pro-life Iowans, they want to see momentum on pro-life bills and legislation in our state, and I feel like you know they also speak to that nationally and that's that's you know potentially how they're going to vote.
0: Chris I'm curious which uh, GOP candidate do you think uh, best represents the right to life vote and why um
4: I guess i I well, let me just say that I write to life is pretty much we don't endorse one candidate over another. We have put out a voter resource reference which kind of summarizes every perspective that an uh, that a candidate that's um co- you know kind of campaigning in Iowa has said. I would hate to as a representative of via Right to Life considering that we don't endorse candidates would really hate to say what I would um Support as far as a presidential candidate. I have heard to heard many of them. I've been in you know the audience live and I would say that um, the most extreme point of view is going to be the one that I would kind of gravitate towards. But I'm going to go with the candidate that's going to put the most limitations on access to abortion, particularly those elective abortions.
0: Well, the candidate who really is the front runner right now, who I know will not be in Iowa, is former President Donald Trump. Uh, and he appointed several pro-life Supreme Court justices uh, to the court and has often called himself and been referred to by some as the most pro-life president in U.S. history. Yet in a September interview with Meet the Press, he said this. Let's take a listen.
3: I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five week and six week ban. Would you support that? You think I, that I goes far? I think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake.
0: Christy, what, what do you think of those comments by the former president? And how does Iowa Right to Life, you know, maybe view the former president? You know, I want to be very careful because a lot of people that I honor and
4: respect support him. I would say personally that I feel like any person who is on the side of life needs to really educate themselves and understand what we're speaking to with regard to legislation. When you consider that a heartbeat can be detected at the time frame that, you know, uh, Florida and Ron DeSantis has actually— you know, put into legislation and what Iowa wants to do here. You know, we are working to um, progress a fetal heartbeat bill here in Iowa, which would, you know, once the fetal heartbeat is detected, you know, they call it a ban, but we call it just basically saving the life of that baby because there is a detectable heartbeat. And that's the thing that identifies life versus something that isn't living. And so I would say that um, I don't really want to comment on Donald Trump per se, because, again, a lot of people that I know and respect and IR Right to Life doesn't endorse one candidate over the other. But I guess I would just encourage any candidate to really reach out to IR Right to Life to gather information on fetal development so they know that when they're talking about an abortion limitation, when those babies can be killed in the womb, that they understand that from the moment of conception— that there is a viable human being there. Viability is always an issue with regard to whether abortion should or shouldn't exist at a certain time frame. Our right to to life believes that life begins at conception and we will fight tooth and nail (laughs) to make sure that people are educated. And I guess that's all that we're really asking, you know, Iowans to do, those that might be on the fence to like to do, reach out to us. We're going to give them information. We're not going to you know, tell them how they can or cannot vote, but provide that resource so they know um, what the truth is about fetal development so they can hopefully have a basis for why they want to vote like they do and support
0: a candidate like they do. Oh, Christy, we got to get going. Thank you so much for your insights. We really appreciate it. And thank you for all that you do. God bless. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, moving ahead, an update on the trial of a man accused of murdering a priest in Nebraska. Plus, the Vatican issues further clarification on blessings for same-sex couples. Dr. Matthew Budson joins us to discuss. says the trial can proceed for a suspect accused of murdering a Catholic priest in Nebraska. The 43-year-old suspect was found laying on top of the stamp priest in the rectory of St. John the Baptist Church in Fort Calhoun. 65-year-old father Stephen Gutskill died of multiple stab wounds. He was laid to rest last month. Prosecutors have yet to decide if they will pursue the death penalty. Well, the Vatican has clarified its recent document on guidance for blessings of same-sex couples and those in irregular situations. It says no teaching on marriage has changed and that pastoral blessings of same-sex couples are not an endorsement of those who request them. The head of the Vatican Department that issued the document last month also says the original decree was meant as a, quote, clear answer to church leaders in Germany. Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez says the document forbids liturgical blessings for same-sex couples, a plan being considered by some in Germany and elsewhere. In an interview with a German newspaper this week, the head of the dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith said, in part, quote, It is not the answer that people in two or three countries would like to have. Rather, it is a pastoral response that everyone could accept, albeit with difficulty. The interview came as the dicastery released new clarifications on the blessings for same-sex couples. And we turn now to Matthew Bunsen, Editorial Director for EWTN News. Dr. Bunsen, great to be with you as always. Um, So talk to us about why Cardinal Fernandez issued this new effort to clarify the original declaration on blessings.
5: Yeah, well, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, let's just say that this is uh, for Cardinal Fernandez and his role as prefect for the Dicastry of the Doctrine of the Faith, his first uh, exercise or foray into what you might term ecclesiastical crisis management. Uh, really, from the moment that the decree was promulgated, there have been uh, something of a crisis across uh, much of the globe. There was a crisis among many of the faithful uh, who were immediately confused, baffled, and in some cases scandalized, certainly by what they heard in the mainstream media and progressive Catholic media, uh, whether or not this is actually going to permit the uh, blessings of uh, same-sex unions. Uh, Then we had uh, progressives who were pushing this, as we saw in Germany and elsewhere, including uh, parts of uh, Belgium, Uh, who were taking this well beyond uh, what was allowed uh, and foreseen in this declaration in terms of those blessings. But the biggest uh, issue for Cardinal Fernandez has been the sharp reaction of bishops around the world. Uh, Some have taken a position of caution, like many of the U.S. bishops, uh, in terms of how we're going to grapple with uh, the actual application of this. But many in Africa in particular, but also in South America and Eastern Europe, have come out uh, in firm opposition uh... to the whole idea of blessing same-sex couples in any fashion uh... calling it a risk of confusion and scandal for the faithful so there's a lot on his plate that he has to deal with and this declaration was intended in some way to try to deal with that
0: yeah and what is the difference between this clarification and the original decree
5: Well, he goes to some lengths in this uh, decree to reiterate, to try to uh, calm some of the alarm of bishops around the world, that nothing has changed in terms of doctrine. But the uh, the biggest uh, shift in this is that he's speaking much more directly to the bishops around the world, uh, something that uh, some argued was not the case in this original declaration. Uh, He's giving wide latitude to the bishops in the implementation of how they go about doing this going so far as to say that the disagreements with this uh, declaration do not constitute some sort of doctrinal dissent. At the same time, however, he is calling on the bishops, uh, wherever they are and under their local circumstances, to try to implement it uh, serenely, but also after a process of discernment. Uh, The other big question emerging out of this that he's trying to answer is a practical application of what this looks like on the ground uh, in dioceses and parishes.
0: And Matthew... You know, what are some of the concrete examples of blessings that is given in this new statement? Why are they important in this situation?
5: Yeah, well, it's that on the ground reality we have seen in social media, for example, that what were supposed to be a simple and spontaneous blessings that are supposed to be a few seconds, as Cardinal Fernandez writes, uh, have turned in some cases uh, into very elaborate affairs that seem very clearly to violate both the letter and spirit of uh, fiducia supplicants. So he is making it clear again what is possible and what isn't, making that distinction as he does in this document between liturgical and pastoral blessings and reiterating again the circumstances and locations where they're allowed and where they're not allowed. That has uh, grave uh, implications, I think, because of how this might play out uh, in the weeks and months to come if we continue to see uh, the social media photographs and other things of blessings that go well beyond what was foreseen by this uh, dicastery and by Pope Francis.
0: Matthew, we have probably less than 30 seconds left, but quickly, what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, do you think this will ease the crisis?
5: Yeah, a a couple of questions I think uh, are still outstanding. How will the bishops in Africa and elsewhere receive this? Will they remain in firm opposition to the whole concept of these pastoral blessings? Uh, We're also going to have to see what the Germans decide to do. Uh, Archbishop or Cardinal Fernandez uh, plans to travel to Germany to meet with them to try to solve this crisis on that front. If they plow ahead, as they seem determined to do with their own synodal path, including blessings of same-sex unions in a liturgical setting. Uh, We could see this crisis uh, play out uh, quite into the future.
0: Dr. Matthew Bunsen, editorial director for EWTN News, always wonderful to be with you. God bless. Good to be with you. And finally tonight, a record number of college-age students are joining bishops, priests, religious brothers and sisters, and others at a gathering in St. Louis. It is part of the SEEK 24 conference held by the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, or FOCUS. Among the more than 18,000 registered attendees is Monsi Alvarado, President and Chief Operating Officer for EWTN News.
6: Thank you so much, Tracy. As you can tell, I'm here in St. Louis with the Fellowship of Catholic University Students at their SEEK conference. And what is that word, SEEK? It's where all of these students from around the country come to find something remarkable, their relationship with Jesus Christ. 18,000 young people who have signed up and paid to be here. They come for mass, they come for talks. Father Mike Schmitz, Father Josh Johnson, all of these big names in the church that are here to give them the wisdom, the information that they need to carry on with the rest of their lives, with a strong relationship with Jesus. So it's 18,000 young people and, of course, over 25,000 people total because the St. Louis community is benefiting from this as well. They are welcome to join in mass, sacraments, talks, everything that is available to them through this conference. And you can see that I'm here in Mission Way, where all of the apostolates have their booths, of course. EWTN is here as well. And you've got apostolates like the Hallow App, the Augustine Institute, that all want to invite these young people on mission with them. And Men and women religious, orders like the Little Sisters of the Poor and the Sisters of Life, they're all here trying to invite young men and women into the consecrated life as well. And so those vocations we know we pray for and are so important. This is the 25th anniversary of Focus and also the 25th anniversary of John Paul II being here as well. And so we grab onto those moments of the Holy Spirit and know that that is what it's going to carry us through this beginning of 2024. And watch out for the rest of the coverage that we're going to be doing straight from here in St. Louis. Mark Irons is going to have a report for you guys on Monday night, so don't miss it. This is Monte Alvarado from St. Louis at the Focus Conference for EWTN News Nightly.
0: And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook X and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.